There used to be this highly ideological issue, right? Like we had a whole revolution that started in part because of how much we wanted to be a part of the European Union. And now years later, it kind of spiraled into this bureaucratic mess. The war in Ukraine has definitely changed the calculus for the EU. And I think the European countries are now realizing that um, enlargement might be key to strategic security in the region. Hungary has already threatened to block the progress if Ukraine doesn't address some of the problems that Hungary currently has with the national minorities law and specifically with the education provisions there. So we're in for many, many months and potentially years of negotiations and open doors here. Definitely. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lopatina. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Anastasia Malenko to talk about Ukraine's decade-long journey towards the European Union and whether recession is finally on the horizon. Nice day. It's your first time on the podcast, so welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we go on, I'll just remind you guys to please subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to the show, whether that's on YouTube or on your favorite audio platform. Like us, leave reviews, comments. It takes only a second for you, but goes a really long way for us because it helps YouTube and other platforms promote us so more people will be informed about the war in Ukraine. So, Nastya, I want to begin just by briefly explaining Ukraine's journey towards the EU throughout the years. Because over a decade ago, it used to be this highly ideological issue, right? Like we had a whole revolution that started in part because of how much we wanted to be a part of the European Union. And now years later, it kind of spiraled into this bureaucratic mess that, you know, we keep on waiting and we keep on working and knocking on doors. Eurocommission just said today, actually, uh, that they recommend beginning accession talks with Ukraine, which is a huge deal here. But it's been, it's been literally more than a decade. Um, so. Can you just tell us what has this effort looked like over the years? Yeah, so Ukraine actually began its European aspirations back in 1993. But you're right, it actually came to the forefront, the society, in 2013 with the Euromaidan, when then-President Viktor Yanukovych declined to sign the European Association Agreement. And since then, as you know, Euromaidan turned into Revolution of Dignity, which touched on many societal reforms, including anti-corruption efforts, and mm -hmm. ended up ousting the pro-Russian, Viktor Yanukovych. And after that, Verkhovna Rada declared the irreversible track of Ukraine on its path to European integration. And so since then, Ukraine has signed the association agreement and has been on the reform path ever since. So it wasn't really until Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine that the process really took off. Just four days after the full-scale invasion, Ukraine actually applied to become a member of the EU, and then it received the candidate status later that year in June. And along with the candidate status, it received the seven key conditions or criteria that it would have to meet before uh, it can open the negotiations to uh, join the EU. But I thought that Ukraine had some sort of, you know, conditions for years now, because we have, for example, this entire anti-corruption system, the new bodies like, you know, Naboo and Sapo, etc. I thought that they were also created in response to EU conditions or something like that? Yeah. So the conditions that was set out in June were very particular and very specific. But before that, we operated with the association agreement as kind of the general roadmap for reforms that generally encouraged anti-corruption efforts, as you mentioned, as well as other pro-democratic reforms in Ukraine. Okay. So there are all of these requirements that we have to fill. 
seven, as you've said, and Ukrainians keep saying that it has fulfilled some of them. So just explain that for us. What are these requirements and, you know, what's the general list here? Yeah. So as I mentioned, in June, Ukraine received the candidate status on the understanding that it meets these seven key requirements. And they concern stronger anti-corruption efforts, judicial and law enforcement reforms, media law, anti-money laundering measures, as well as laws to rein in oligarchs and protect the rights of national minorities. So this is just a general overview I'm giving you, but you commission provided pretty specific requirements, such as completing the appointment of a new head of the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, among others. So what has Ukraine's progress been so far? What requirements are already fulfilled? As of now, Ukraine has met four out of seven criteria that the EU set out. So according to the EU Commission report that came out today, Ukraine has fulfilled the media law reform requirement. It also fulfilled its requirements with the anti-money laundering efforts. It aligned the legislation in Ukraine with the necessary standards. It also approved a strategic plan for reforming the entire law enforcement sector. And there are some other developments in the judicial sector that the EU said Ukraine has made good progress on. And what are the requirements that we are yet to fulfill? The key directions that remain are strengthening the anti-corruption efforts, implementing anti-oligarch measures, and finalizing the reform that protects national minorities' rights. Okay, so let's start with the oligarchs and corruption, because, well, those are two quite interwoven phenomenon in Ukraine. So what are the specific things that EU wants us to do in these directions? When it comes to anti-corruption efforts, the report said that Ukraine has advanced its track record in finding corruption. And some of the key milestones that they mentioned are appointments of the heads of SAPO and NABU, as well as increased overall performance of the high anti-corruption court. But some additional reforms remain. The report said Ukraine should still enact a law raising the legislative staffing cap for the NABU and also remove some existing limitations on its powers from the law on corruption prevention. When it comes to anti-oligarch measures, there has also been some progress. For example, Ukraine has updated and continued to implement its action plan to reduce the influence of oligarchs through various systemic efforts. But the report said that Ukraine should still enact a law on regulating lobbying in line with European standards as a part of its bigger plan. And NABU that you mentioned is the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. Exactly. And SAPO is the Special Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then what about the national minority laws? Because to be honest, I've heard, I've seen so many news, you know, so many developments in this area, all of these laws being passed that I kind of assumed that question was long taken care of. Uh, yeah. So you're right. The process has been quite lengthy. The initial law was adopted in December 2022. It was later amended in September of this year based on the feedback that Ukraine received from the Venice Commission. So at its core, the document really aims to protect the rights of national minorities in Ukraine. The protection extends to cultural identity, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of receiving education in the national minority language. And Zelensky actually signed the September version of the law. But according to the recent feedback from the Venice Commission from October, there are still some changes that need to be made. Some of the feedback they mentioned is that there needs to be election materials in national minority languages in addition to Ukrainian, as well as expanded education opportunities in those languages. And just to make sure, what are these groups that we're talking about, the national minorities? What, what kind of national minorities does Ukraine have? Ukraine has plenty, but some of the ones that have been in the news lately are Hungarians and Romanians, just because um, the issue of the national minorities law has been surfacing in the news as quite political with Hungary and Romania 
also giving feedback on uh, Ukraine's uh, strides um, in that in that sphere. And then I also guess the Russians, right? Because as much as Ukrainians may not like that very much, we do have a you know a, a good number of Russians living in Ukraine. But because of the current situation, uh, my understanding is that Russian language is not in consideration in this law. And what is this Venice Commission that has commented on all of these laws? It is an advisory body to the Council of Europe, and it helps states to bring their legislation in line with European standards and just international practices that help to advance democracy, human rights, um, and the rule of law. So this Euro Commission report that we've been discussing throughout the episode really dives into this important feedback and the takeaways. But then the more important part, I guess, for the Ukrainian society is kind of the conclusion of the report, which is that the Euro Commission officially recommends that the EU begin ascension talks with Ukraine. So can you just tell us what does that mean practically? Like, what, what are the next steps? Like, is this really as big of a deal as it is perceived here in Ukraine? Yeah, so the EU leaders will now meet at a summit in December, and they will decide whether to back the commission's conclusions, and um, they will decide on the next steps for Ukraine. And do we have any expectations from the summit? Like, what are we projecting that's going to happen? This will be a political decision that would require unanimous support from all 27 uh, members of the bloc. That sounds problematic. Exactly. So Hungary has already threatened to block the progress if Ukraine doesn't address some of the problems that Hungary currently has with the national minorities law and specifically with the education provisions there. But Ukraine has been in contact with the Hungarian counterparts and they're currently working on resolving those issues. Yeah, I think just like hours after the report came out today, Ukrainian government said that, you know, Ukraine has already sent a delegation to Budapest and they're already, they've already proposed a whole plan on how to solve it. So it looks like Ukraine is treating this seriously and so does Hungary. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I've spoken to Vadim Halichuk, deputy chair of parliamentary committee on European integration. And he said that based on the preliminary feedback they received from the European partners, he is pretty optimistic. All in all, in December, the European leaders will meet and decide whether to open the negotiation with Ukraine. But then the actual specific negotiating framework will be decided in March when the European Commission will report on whether or not Ukraine has met the additional conditions they outlined in the report today that we already discussed. So we're in for many, many months and potentially years of negotiations and open doors here. Definitely. We're now going to be addressing the community question of today's episode. Uh, I'll remind you guys to go to givenindependent.com slash membership. Uh, to donate to us, you can become a member of our community for as little as $5 a month. And you get really cool perks, including our favorite perk, which is that you get to send us in questions before every single episode. And we try to incorporate as many of them as we can all throughout. So the question of today is, typically, how long do such negotiations take place? Will it be another nine years? The community member is wondering, which is a really good question. The short answer is, it depends. It really depends on many factors, including political will, the pace of the reforms, as well as the dynamics within the EU. The Ukrainian lawmaker I talked to said that the legislators are acutely aware of the timeline and that Ukraine has no time to waste in the process, but the time pressure can't allow for shortcuts and it will take time to adopt and implement the EU legislation that will be needed before Ukraine can join the EU. For example, EU's negotiations with Turkey began in 2005 and they're now at a standstill. But for other countries like Sweden and Finland, the formal negotiations took a little over a year. So it really depends on the 
on the context. That's a huge difference. Yeah. And then what about us being at war? Like, does that factor in as much and as seriously as with NATO, for example, where, you know, we technically by the rule book just cannot join NATO because we're at war? Is it similar to the EU process? I'm sure it will be a consideration, um, definitely less of a consideration since there's no Article 5 to invoke and it's not a security alliance. But the war in Ukraine has definitely changed the calculus for the EU. And I think the European countries are now realizing that enlargement might be key to strategic security in the region. So I'm sure they will be thinking about the war as well as its economical implications as they're considering when and how Ukraine can join the bloc. Well, Nastya, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully you'll be back soon. Thank you so much for having me. Also this week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said that the first group of 43 Ukrainians were evacuated from Gaza and are now in Egypt. Ukraine also helped evacuate 36 citizens of Moldova, the president said. Ukrainian authorities reported that hundreds of other Ukrainians still evade evacuation. The aide to Ukraine's commander-in-chief Valery Zaluzhny, Major Hennady Chistakov, was killed in a grain explosion at his home on November 7th. Ukraine's interior ministry said that his death was likely the result of a careless handling of ammunition, but the investigation was still ongoing. And the newly delivered National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile Systems have finally entered service in Ukraine, Zelensky said on November 7th. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go to kivindependent.com membership to support the Kiv Independent and follow us on X, Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.